0: Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. Whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. For riches do not last forever. And does a crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered, the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats the price of a field There will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household, and maintenance for your girls. Chapter 8, verse 27. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command... When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him, like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Chapter 26, verse 13. The sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The sluggard does not plough in the autumn. He will seek at harvest And have nothing. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber. And want like an armed man. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. While the soul of the diligent is richly Supplied. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labour. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. In chapter 16, verse 11. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are His work. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord, and false scales are not good. And lastly, chapter 16, verse 1 and following. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, and we're going to pray before we look at it more closely together. Let's pray together now. Lord God, we long to be wise, we long to reflect your goodness, to look more and more like Jesus. And Lord, we ask this evening that you would help us to learn how to do so. Learn how to look more like Jesus in our work. Lord, we ask just for attentive hearts. Keep us alert and focused and uh, and just able to take this in this evening. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Sunday evening. The time in the week where thoughts start to drift from what's hopefully been a fun Saturday, maybe at the rugby, watching Scotland beating Argentina, maybe a relaxing Sunday, even a nap this afternoon, to the week to come. So what does this week hold for you? Is it looking like it will be a good week or not such a good week? Now, what if I were to ask you to give a reason for that answer? What is it that determines whether you think a week is going to be a good one or not such a good one? There may be lots of different factors that spring into your mind, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if the issue that sets the tone of your week more than any other issue is how things are or how things are likely to be at work. See, for some of us, we get to a Sunday evening and, well, we're looking forward to the working week. We enjoy our jobs. We enjoy our education. We enjoy what we do from 9 to 5 Monday to Friday. We find the work to be stimulating, to be exciting. And not only that, but we usually find that we're appreciated by colleagues, by, by bosses, even by the family at home, All in all, you're looking forward to the week to come. But for others, the picture is perhaps a less happy one. Sunday evening brings with it a familiar feeling in the pit of the stomach. It's a time of dread as we look forward to the week to come. Because when we think of Monday morning, we think of the to-do list that's well, it's twice as long as it was last Monday. Most of the things you did manage to get through last week, well, they they didn't quite go to plan. You'll probably need to redo some of those. And no one, neither your boss, your colleagues, the family at home, seem to appreciate or to recognise quite how hard you've been working. See, a lot of us will spend most most of our waking day doing some kind of work whether that's paid or it's unpaid, whether that's in full-time education. And even if you're retired, my experience of those who are retired is they tend to work even harder than when they were working. And for good or for bad, work has a major effect on us. It sets the tone for the rest of our lives very often. Now, at Chalmers, over the past few months, we've been dipping in and out of the book of Proverbs together. It's been a few months since we've um, been here, but you'll remember that the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. Now, remember that wisdom isn't the same thing as intelligence. It isn't even the ability to make the correct moral judgment about a situation. Wisdom is being able to look at a situation which could be approached in a number of different ways, none of which are necessarily morally right or morally wrong, and being able to choose the right way to go. And wisdom, it says Proverbs, starts with having a correct view or a correct understanding of God, of who God is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what the author says in chapter 9. And the rest of the Proverbs kind of flesh this principle out. They show us what it looks like in the nuts and bolts of life. Really earthy, really practical and helpful And the author of the Proverbs recognises quite what a big part of our lives' work really is. The author devotes a lot of his time to work, to why we should work, and to how we should work. So we're going to spend some time this evening looking at that in more detail. Again, you'll see there were some headings on your service sheet, um, and they might be helpful to follow along with um, this evening. So our first point, why... We work. Now, for most of us, if we're in paid employment of any kind, really, at least part of the motivation of doing that, unless we live a very charmed life, is to provide. It's done out of necessity. Even if we're studying full-time, that study is often driven by a view to getting into full-time paid employment afterwards. And as he very often does, the author of Proverbs calls a spade, a spade. Chapter 12, verse 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Just wish he'd say what he was thinking sometimes, don't you? Then again, chapter 28, verse 19. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So, at least part of the reason that the Bible tells us we should work is to be able to eat, to be able to clothe ourselves, to house ourselves. And more than that, look on to the last proverb in that little section, chapter 27, verse 27. The author encourages his reader to be mindful of his possessions, to be mindful of his earnings, so that there will be enough goat's milk for your food, for the food of your household. And for the maintenance of your girls or of your daughters. So he's not just encouraging, right, go out and work, earn lots of money and hoard it all. It's a case of working to be able to practically support, to provide for, dependence for households, for families. Now I'm conscious this evening that there may be some of us who aren't in paid employment. And who would love to be. This shouldn't feel like a rebuke to you at all. The point of this is not to rebuke. It's to lay out, as is the case with all the Proverbs, it lays out how the world generally works. The way the world generally works is that in order to eat, in order to survive, most of us have to work to earn the money to do so. Now that might all sound very unspiritual. It's very mundane. It's very almost worldly. But I think it's helpful for us to be reminded that that isn't an unspiritual thing. The Bible encourages us to work so that we can provide, so that we can eat, so that we can support ourselves and our families. It's part of how God designed the world to work. But for some of us, that's maybe not all that helpful a reminder. We don't need to be reminded that we work to earn money and to support others. We're all too aware of that. Perhaps you feel as though the only reason you work is to earn money. It feels a little bit like you're a battery hen. There's no dignity, no ultimate purpose to what you spend most of your waking week doing. You spend 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week in the workplace. And the only real reason you do that is to produce And if you're a Christian, you might find that your involvement in church only kind of heightens that feeling, only makes that feeling worse. Because if you aren't in in paid Christian ministry, and you maybe spend a lot of your waking hours at work, and you don't have the time to be as involved in Christian work as you'd like, so you might be tempted to think that the only spiritual aspect of the job that you do, of the thing that you spend most of your life doing, is the paycheck at the end of the month that enables you to support Christian workers, to support the church, to support your family. And that God isn't really interested in what you do day by day. As long as you keep giving money to the church, then that's fine. Perhaps you feel no joy, no dignity, and you feel no real worth in what you spend your day doing. But Proverbs paints a far less anemic picture of work than that. We'll see that in our next heading. We work because God works. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 27. When he, as God the Father, established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. Now, the point of these verses is to teach us about the relationship between God the Father and wisdom personified in Jesus, God the Son. But do you see what event he's using to do that? It's the creation narrative. It's God creating the heavens, verse 27. Creating the skies, verse 28. Creating the seas and the very foundations of the earth, verse 29. So what is it that God himself is doing in these verses? He's working. He's working. And not only that, he describes Jesus' response to that work. I was rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. God the Father is working to create the inhabited world, to create people, to live in that world... And God the Son, Jesus, is rejoicing in those things. Well, so what? Well, it seems to me, and it's maybe just my experience, but it seems to me that it could be very easy to be caught up in a kind of Christian rat race, where things only seem to get spiritual or to have any real meaning and depth and ultimate purpose when you arrive in here on a Sunday. And that what you spend 40 or 50 or 60 hours each week doing is only relevant to God because of the paycheck you get at the end of the month. Because you can plough money into the church. Now how how we handle our money is important. We'll see that next Sunday evening. But Proverbs shows us that if you work, and if you work hard, you shouldn't feel like a battery hen. (laughs) You shouldn't feel like the only reason you're working is to produce. Work has great dignity, has great value, has great worth. God himself does it. It's part of how he has ordered this created world. And the Bible tells us that we will all work in heaven and in the new creation. It's part of what we were made to do. So I want to say to you this evening that God isn't just interested in how you financially contribute to spiritual work, to full-time Christian ministry. He is interested in that, but he's also interested in your work full-stop. It's part of his good design for you. Think on the fact that his own son was a blue-collar carpenter for 30 years. And the fact that God himself works, that he rejoices in work, means that the work you do, whether it's investment banking, whether it's manual labor, whether it's servant tea, whether it's nursing or teaching, it has inherent value and dignity. It's part of God's good design. That's how he does things himself. We work because God works. So that's why Proverbs tell us that we work. We work for practical reasons, nuts and bolts reasons. We need to put food on the table. But we also work because it's how God created us. It's how he created the world. But what difference does me being a Christian make to the way in which I am to work? Because that stuff might help us get out of bed on a Monday morning. But what difference does it make to me when I'm actually in the office? Well, that's our next point this evening, how we should work. Now, my wife and I love watching... She doesn't know I'm going to share this story. My wife and I, and can see you're getting nervous, love watching Disney Pixar films. I would say that it's a guilty pleasure, but I don't feel any guilt about it whatsoever. They're brilliant. And there's one that came out last year, and it got rave reviews from critics, which is a rarity, and it's called Inside Out. I'm not sure if you've seen it. It's about a young girl called Riley. And it follows Riley as her parents make a big move from one part of the United States to another part. So far, so predictable. It's a coming-of-age story about the ups and downs of the move. But that's not actually what the story focuses on. Because the film is set inside Riley's mind. It follows the interactions of five of her emotions. They're all personified. They're all individual characters. So there's joy, there's sadness, there's anger, there's fear, and there's disgust. Now, I can tell by your faces you're all going to be going out to uh, by the DVD at the end of this evening. One surefire way to ruin the magic of a kid's film is to make one grown-up explain it to another group of grown-ups. Well, the book of Proverbs did this personification thing literally thousands of years before Pixar did. The author takes one character trait and personifies it. Because one of the main characters in Proverbs keeps coming up over and over and over again is a character called the sluggard. We don't use the word sluggard very often now, but it means laziness or idleness. And throughout Proverbs, the sluggard is kind of a comical figure. So we'll read again, chapter 26, verse 13. The sluggard says, There is a lion in the road, there is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So in verse 13, this guy, the sluggard, invents an excuse so he doesn't have to leave the house. He says there's a line in the road. Now it puts the old dog ate my homework to shame, doesn't it? Then verse 14, we read that he's physically attached to his bed like a door on its hinges. And he's so lazy that by verse 15, he's sitting down to have his dinner and his fork makes it to the dish, but he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. The author's being deliberately funny. It's meant to raise a smile. That's the point. But although much of what's said about the sluggard is a bit of a joke, is meant, meant to raise a smile, he's there to make a very serious point. Chapter 6, verse 9. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest... And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, the caricature in chapter 26 of the sluggard of the person who's unwilling to work is ridiculous. But for all that it raises a giggle, the truth is that because of this sluggard's laziness, his unwillingness to work and to work hard, poverty will come upon him. And notice how poverty will come upon him. Chapter 6, verse 11. Like a robber and want like an armed man. Now, it's not a particularly pleasant thing to be stolen from. And that's the point the author is making. This isn't a very pleasant thing at all. And things get more serious still. The sluggard's laziness has spiritual implications. Chapter 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. He craves, he wants something, but he's not going to be spiritually satisfied. It's very serious stuff. So what does sluggardliness, easy for me to say, what does sluggardliness look like for us? Because you're maybe unlikely to pick up the phone tomorrow and, hi there, yeah, yeah I'm just phoning to say I can't come into to work today. Yeah, no, no, I'm, no, I'm feeling fine. No, it's just there's, there's a lion out on Marchmont Road. Yeah, 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 I can't make it in. It's not going to happen. But what about the person who has an allocated hour for lunch It takes an hour and a half most days? I'll be paid the same either way. No one really notices. Boss doesn't really keep much of an eye when I get back to the desk. No one will notice. Or maybe you, you're quite comfortable working your allotted hours. But to be honest, you're a bit of an empty soup when you're at the desk for quite a lot of the day. I've been doing this job for long enough. I don't need to give it 100% to do the job well enough to get by. Why bother trying? As a Christian, the sluggard is to be funny, but is also to be a warning. Because instead of being sluggardly, says Proverbs... We are to behave like ants. That's right, I said ants. Chapter 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. We are to work with diligence, says the author, which means that even when our boss isn't breathing down our neck, we keep grafting away. Now, that's not to say that we don't rest. The Bible has a lot to say about rest. But that when we're working, we're to do so with diligence. Now, that applies even if your boss is really hard to work for, that applies even when you don't find every part of your job to be completely satisfying. And that applies even when you can get away with coasting through each day. As Christians, we are to work diligently. Secondly, Proverbs says that as Christians, we are to work with integrity. Chapter 16, verse 11. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. Chapter 20, verse 23. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord." And false scales are not good. The author says that dishonesty just doesn't tally with who God is. God is just. God is fair. And so we should be too. Christians are to be marked by integrity. And the example that's used in Proverbs is of a balance and scales. It's a workplace or a trading example. Christians are to be marked by integrity in how we trade and how we work. So what does that look like for you? Well, I suppose that will look slightly different depending on where you work. So for those of you who don't know me, I am a litigation solicitor. That's what I do during the week. If you've ever seen the program Suits or the program The Good Wife, it's absolutely nothing like that. We do a lot more shuffling of papers uh, and, and boring procedural stuff. But that's what I do during the week. And in quite a number of law firms, we do something called time recording. Now, we fill in an electronic sheet through the day, and that shows how we use our time in six-minute blocks. I'm not even kidding. Six-minute blocks. And then it's submitted to our bosses at the end of the day. It might sound bonkers, and that's because it absolutely is. But that's just part of what you get used to. But as I think on this issue of integrity... One way in which this challenges me is to make sure my time recording is as accurate as it can be. That I don't exaggerate, I don't over-record for anything, that I'm really mindful of this stuff. It's a small example, but I think that's what this looks like. So for you, if in your workplace you decide what to fee a client for a particular piece of work, how accurate are you when you decide what to fee them? Or this is one that struck me quite quite strongly recently. If you're at work and you make a mistake of some sort. For example, a small thing. You double boot yourself for a meeting. Forget to call someone when you said you'd call them. Do you own that mistake? Or do you blame an IT failure? A technical glitch. The phones were out. Someone else called me when I was about to call you. There was an emergency in the office. See, the person who fears God, who acts with wisdom in the workplace, works with integrity. And thirdly and finally, with perspective. Now, when you preach on Proverbs, you're always at risk of preaching a really bad Sunday school lesson. A lesson in how to live well and how to be good citizens, but completely missing the point. Because while the author of Proverbs is really practical, he's really earthy, it's really nuts and bolts stuff, he takes a lot of time to lift our eyes up. He does show us that stuff, the stuff that we do every day, that it matters. But he also shows us that the most mundane of work should be met with a healthy dose of perspective. Read with me chapter 16, verses 1 to 3 again. The plans of the heart belong to man, But the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Now, you might remember that we looked at these verses a few months ago when Andy Robertson spoke about what Proverbs has to teach us about planning. But look again at verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say what you would expected to say, which is commit your plans to the Lord and your plans will be established. It says commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Now, that doesn't mean to say that commit your, your work to the Lord and your, and your plans will always come to fruition commit to your work to the Lord and you'll always get what you plan for, but that by committing what we do at work to God, your work is built, your plans for your work are built on a solid foundation. They will be established. They will be strengthened. Now, it seems to me as though this is an application of that big Proverbs principle we looked at at the beginning of our time together that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that having a right view of who God is changes how you approach your work. So when you fear God, when you have a reverence for him, you recognize that he is God of all things. It means that you don't treat your work as if it's something he's not really interested in, that God's somehow interested in your family and he's interested in your money and he's interested in how you think about sex and ethics and relationships and friendships, but that what you spend 50 hours each week doing doesn't matter to him. That's nonsense. God is God of all things, and that includes what you do at work. So if you're a Christian, how often do you ask him for his help with this? How often do you commit your work to God? Ask him to help you Fear him rightly. Ask him to help you to be diligent, to work with integrity, to work with the right perspective. If you're a Christian this evening, then I I would encourage you when you get home this evening or tomorrow morning before things get hectic and you're rushing for the car keys in front of the front door, ask God for his help with this stuff. Commit your work To the Lord. Because by doing so. You're acknowledging his power. Your own weakness. And your need of him. And that is Proverbs 9. That's the fear of the Lord in action. That's what it looks like. Now as we close. I think. As we think about our work. Most of us will be able to think of areas. Where we've lacked diligence. Areas where we've lacked integrity, where we've said things we shouldn't have said, done things we shouldn't have done. Able to think of areas where we've worked with the wrong motives, where we've not been good representatives of God. Well, the Bible tells us that God did work in creation, but it also tells us that God worked in salvation. That out of an overwhelming love for you and for me, that Jesus, God the Son, bore our rebellion against God, the rebellion that looks like a lack of diligence or a lack of integrity. It looks like covering up where we've made mistakes at work, trying to look better than we are. He took that on himself. And that Jesus and the Holy Spirit still work. They intercede on our behalf to God the Father, Jesus seated at the right hand of God, and the Holy Spirit living in us and through us To make us become more like Jesus. So as we think this evening how to approach work. Let's ask him to help us. Ask his forgiveness for we have not lived up to this standard. And for his help to work as he would have us work this coming week. Let's pray to him now. Lord as we read of what it looks like to be wise at work. We are so conscious of how often we fall short of your standard. Our lives so often fall short of how you would have us live, not least in how we work. And we ask for your forgiveness for that this evening. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that he accomplished in his work on the cross, dying a criminal's death in our place. Lord, help us in this coming week to work Because you work. To see the inherent value and dignity in working. That it's how you've made this world. And to do so in a manner that befits someone who follows you. With integrity, with diligence, with the right perspective. That comes from having a right understanding of you. Lord, you are the God of all things and yet you work. Help us to revere you and to love you as we ought. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.